All right, so welcome to Smart Now with JP and Fab, and today we have Angelo Vumbaka, a very old friend of mine. How long have I known you? Oh, jeez, I've probably known you... 25 years, 25 maybe? 25 years? Well, probably. maybe 20, because I've been practicing 25. Something along... I was a kid, I was a teenager when I met you, so it's got to be 25 That's right. years. Knew you right? through your dad. Yeah. Yeah. So, Angelo, he's, he's yeah. a lawyer, and he's been... I met him... Um, for those of you who don't know, my father is a CPA and ran his own little firm in this on the same floor that Angelo was practicing law. And that's how I got to know you. And you became my father's client. And now you're my client. And I met your mom that way, too, when yep. she was practicing law. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, we go small. we go a, a ways back. Yeah. And uh, Angelo, you've been running your own firm for how long? Oh, I would say it's probably 20 years now. Okay. And corporate commercial real estate is yeah, your primary practice. Yeah, I started out uh, working on Bay Street, uh, worked there a few years, uh, did corporate law, real estate, um, you know, managed to squeak out a few years there until I just couldn't take it anymore. Wanted to start a family and figured that uh, working on Bay Street wasn't going to be conducive to a happy family. Definitely not. Uh, not to mention the fact that I always wanted to open my own firm. So I made the move about 20 years ago. Went out on my own. Uh, my first office was actually where your dad was. I was in Concord. Uh, stayed there for about, uh, I'd say, three to four years. And then moved out to Richmond Hill. Perfect. Yeah. So the, the topic that I wanted to cover today, which I think is really important, especially... Um, as clients get older and start to accumulate assets is just the basics of estate planning. Um, I want to cover, uh, you know, things such as last will and testament, um, tips along that those lines. Um, then, you know, if you're self-employed or you're a business owner and you start to have more complex uh, asset holdings, the use of multiple wills, um, the use of uh, joint ownership, these sort these sort of things, right? And what what did you want to cover? Yeah, no, I, I this is this is right this, up our alley. Our our clients, you know, setting our clients up. Um, most people do not do estate planning. Don't have wills in yeah. place. Um, my age group, forties. Uh, yeah. You know, I don't. Fab, do you have a will? You know, I, I really need to get one. But and that's a, and you start thinking about it around around you know your forties, right? I think that's when most. Most I'm noticing most clients um, and myself included, when you start hitting your 40s, you start realizing, I, I mean, as a guy, at least you start realizing, hey, shit, I'm not going to live forever. And I have these kids and I don't want to leave a mess. Right. I want to make sure there's a smooth transition over over to the next generation. Right. So that's really why I wanted to bring you in, because I know you've done just a, a ton of work with estates, especially earlier on. I think it was uh, RBC or one of the banks was giving you a lot of um yeah, uh, like it's funny how I got into this uh, this area of practice. I, um, as you know, my my core practice area has always been corporate, commercial, and real estate law. Um, so I act, you know, our practices are very similar in the sense that owner manager, you know, business run businesses. Uh, you know, at one time, I think you know I, we had five hundred companies we represented from every area: manufacturing, tech, uh, construction, you name it. Um, and what happens is over the years, as you get older and your practice sort of grows, you know, I started off, you know, where my clients were pretty much young people, you know, starting a business. Fast forward 20 years and they're successful, you know, owner managers operating, you know, 
all different types of companies with you know numerous employees, offices, this that. So what happened is you know you're you're doing their corporate work, their real estate, their development work. You get the call. Uh, I need a will. Okay. Um, well, let's see. Okay, maybe you don't just need a will. You need a little bit more planning advice, right? Uh, maybe we, you know. And what I would do is I would always bring in like either an account, their accountant. I always work in a team setting, right? I don't work in a silo. I like to work with the accountant myself, and sometimes we'll bring in an insurance broker. Um, and because a lot of the planning also involves insurance-related advice, right? Um, especially with, you know, businesses where there's multiple partners or shareholders, you know, they might need uh, to get partner's insurance. How does that parlay into, you know, what happens when I die? What happens to the business? And, you know, do we have enough insurance to cover a buy-sell uh, when one partner dies? So all that kind of stuff. So I was actually kind of pushed in that direction by my clients. So I found that, you know, I had to get really up to date in this area. So I started taking a lot of uh, uh, courses um, and we have certificate programs and stuff like that through the Law Society. Um, and I started doing that about 15 years ago. So, you know, yes, you know, we, we do simple wills, but we also do more complex planning. Um, and yeah, I, I used to do work for uh, TD Waterhouse. I did some work for Scotia Trust, CIBC, uh, RBC, not so much. Uh, and, you know, basically I would work with their in-house uh, estate planning department because they're conflicted out. They cannot represent their own clients in drafting their wills. So, you know, I would, you know, work with their in-house in preparing the wills and, and uh, coordinating um, a comprehensive plan along with their in-house advisors. So from, from this perspective, what I want to um, let people know is, all right, what are we talking about? When you, you own a bunch of assets as an individual, shares of a corporation, your home, rental properties, a vacation property, stocks, bonds, whatever it is, right? When you pass away, when you die at law, let's say you die intested, like you don't have a will. At law, from a, from a bird's eye view, what's happening? My understanding is an estate is formed, right? Which is somewhat similar to a trust right? So an estate is formed and your assets go to this estate. Now there's a bunch of tax rules, which really we're not concerned with in this particular podcast. We're talking more about the legal aspects of it, but your estate is formed and then the next of kin gets the, the distribution of these assets. Is this correct? So, you know, that's a good question because everybody always asks that. What happens if I die without a will? Um, so the simple answer is, if you die without a will, the law, there's legislation in place, it's called the Estates Act, that, you know, states that when someone dies, an estate is created. So let's say it's John Doe. John Doe passes away, the estate of John Doe is created. It's kind of uh, an imaginary um, concept, but it's important for a number of reasons. So no will, your estate is created, what happens to the assets of the deceased? So, you know, in, in Canada, we have a common law system, which is very similar to the UK um, and other Commonwealth countries. And the US system is similar, but different in other respects. 
So what happens is, is that you die intestate. Intestate means without a will. And the law will dictate who gets what. Um, you know, I, it's very detailed. There's a, a, a law of hierarchy. But, you know, if, if you want a, a quick summary of it, what would happen is, are you married or are you not married? So if John Doe dies, no will, he's married, then the act would stipulate who gets what. So there's something called the Succession Law Reform Act that kind of works in conjunction. It states is very complicated because it involves so many different statutes. You got to deal with tax statutes that interplay with uh, estate statutes, succession law statutes. So basically what would happen is when you die intestate, the law says, hey, your spouse, and that's a defined term, by the way, um, uh, it's not as simple as people think because now spouse, the, the, the term itself is sort of expanded into common law partners, same-sex individuals, and, and so on and so forth. But anyway, the spouse would get what's called a preferential share. Used to be $200,000. Uh, as of January, uh, April 2020, uh, I think it was Bill 145 or something like that, uh, came out and they increased the spouse's preferential share to 350000 So if John Doe dies without a will, his estate is created and all of his assets kind of get all clumped together. And let's say you do a total, the total is a million dollars, right? Um, the wife gets... 350000 automatically by right of law uh, or operation of law. Does he have children? If he has children, then the children would get a share. So wife gets three fifty. then there's a wife and one child. They would divide the balance 50-50. If there's two children, then it would be a third, a third, a third. So th th there's rules in place to determine who gets what in an intestacy. So I guess then the, the the idea though is in an intestacy, you have no choice. It goes to this to this series of legislation. Correct. Right, and or I'm sure common law comes into play, like certain certain common practices that are passed down from case law. Mm -hmm. Right. So the idea is you die intestate. Intestate. It's not that it's a complete disaster. It's just that you have no choice. Yeah, that's right. Okay. I, I think I get your point. The point is basically, it, if you don't have a will, someone else or something else is going to determine who gets, right? You know, the share of your estate. Right. And so now it's going to be divided. Yeah. So let's say you're in a situation where you are separated, but still technically married to someone, and then you have children with someone else and a common law spouse. This is where it can start getting confusing. It people. gets very complicated. Right. Yeah. And, you know, whatever you you mm -hmm. are, whatever your wishes are, they may not be carried out because we have to go, we have to revert to the law. Right. Or if you have somebody in a different country or assets all over the place. Yeah. Right. So when I was saying estates law is complicated because there's so many statutes that come into play, you know, we didn't even talk about the Family Law Act. Like, right. You know, you're talking about uh, an act that determines uh, how assets are divided among married individuals. Um, and then there's common law. You may not be legally married, but you may be common law. Um, and you're entitled to certain entitlements as well as a common law partner. Um, you know, we could have a whole discussion about, you know, the rights of spouses. Uh, that would take up hours and hours. But I think the important thing to know is, is that... 
Um, having a will is extremely important because what it basically does is you've established how you want your estate to be divided, who your beneficiaries are going to be when you die, and you haven't left it to the state to determine how your, uh, your assets are broken up. Okay. Right. So now a will, a last will and testament. Mm-hmm. What is that? Is it simply a contract between yourself and society? How, how, how does that play out legally? So a will is a legal instrument uh, that is a creature of common law. So what that means is, you know, wills go back hundreds of years back to, you know, the British Commonwealth. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, they're a creature of the feudal system and fiefdom, which um, I believe it was King Richard who created the, the law of uh, fiefdoms. And basically in those days, what happened is, you know, uh, the king, the monarch decided when you die, how your estate gets divvied up. Because in those days, you know, if you were a landowner, you know, uh, the monarchy was very interested in how its fiefdom, which were all of these plots of land that came from the monarchy, were going to be divided. So what developed over the centuries was something that was determined by the monarchy developed into um, what became common law, meaning the courts were established and there were specific courts that dealt with the division of assets upon death. And these were the chancery courts and the probate courts where you went to dispute, you know, the division of assets. So all of that kind of developed over the years. And eventually, you know, what happened is people would start writing down how they wanted their assets to be divided. So that's what a will is. It's basically a legal instrument that says, I, John Doe, uh, when I die, this is what I would like. I would like to appoint this individual to be my executor who's going to administer the division and distribution of assets in my estate, and this is who I want to benefit uh, um, from uh, my estate. Okay. So it's an individual. It, it's, it's a, it sounds like it's a, a flexible document. It's an instrument of law, let's call it, that um, you can essentially... Uh, determine who gets what um, but you cannot obviously break laws like establish laws with this particular this particular document right well fortunately or unfortunately we are in a common law system what does that mean unlike the civil law system in europe they have what's called forced airship uh forced airship you don't even need a will in most civil law jurisdictions because they're uh, the determination of how assets are distributed on death are all statutory, so determined by legislation. So if you live in a country like Spain or Italy or France or Greece, for the most part, when you die, you can't write a piece of paper that says, oh, I have a terrible relationship with my third son who hasn't talked to me in 50 years. I want to cut him out of my will. What happens there is, you know, statute, it's codified, will determine how your assets are distributed. Whereas under our common law system, we have flexibility. So our system is one of um, free will. Um, and a will is basically an instrument that gives you the power to decide who's going to get what. Now, that's a very broad statement and not 100% true. Why do I say that? 
Most people think that they can put anything they want in their will. I leave everything to the satanic society of whatever. And, you know, if you have kids when you die or a spouse and you've excluded them, they could contest the will, right? So there's many things that people can do um, to contest a will. So it's not ironclad for the most part. Like, I just want to convey you can pretty much determine who's going to get what, but you're also bound by court cases or common law and what we call public policy in what you do in that will. So if you try to put provisions, you know, over the centuries, people have come up with crazy wills where they've said, I leave everything to my youngest daughter, provided she marries a white man of this neighborhood and blah, blah, blah. Well, the courts determined that's contrary to public policy and they're not going to uphold those provisions. So certain things will intervene in that free will that you have in, 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 as well as family law. Like when we started talking about family law, you know, you cannot just exclude a spouse. You can try and, you know, on your deathbed, prepare a will and say, I had a horrible relationship with my wife and I don't want to leave her anything. Well, in, in Canada and in particular in Ontario, our family law act and the divorce act protects spouses and gives them entitlements to assets of their spouse. So if you were to exclude your spouse in your will, they could file what's called a section six election under the family law act, and they could elect to effectively, they've got six months to do this after you die, and they could say, hey, you know what? Even if you didn't exclude your spouse, but you said, I only leave her $100,000, the estate's worth a million, that spouse could say, I want to treat uh, my marriage as though we were separated at the date of my husband's death and I'm seeking an equalization of our estate. So in effect, you could receive the same entitlements you would if you were going through a separation or a divorce. Right. So as a spouse, you can elect whether you're going to take under the will or under uh, statute. We, yeah, which makes Sneaky. sense. Yeah. It's sneaky, it's but it, make, sneaky. it makes sense. It makes <laughs> right? sense. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. You're married to somebody for like 40 years and then on their deathbed, they, they're like, screw you. Ha ha ha. I'm going to leave everything to my dog. How, right? like, how often do you see this, this <laughs> sneakiness? To be honest, I haven't seen it. Oh, okay. I mean, <laughs> but it, yeah, theoretically, it makes yeah. sense, though. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You can't just cut somebody out after right. a long, especially a long term marriage. And, and leave it to your buddy. You know what I mean? It, it doesn't make sense. That's right. Right? And also, the bigger one is excluding certain children. Right. This is the one that's seeing the most action in the courts. You I've, know? I've, I've, I literally heard about, uh, two people last week said, I'm not, my kids aren't getting, or this one kid isn't getting it. Yeah, so, yeah I've, I've, I've run into this with clients. That's common nowadays. Uh, oddly enough, you know, I've got three cases like that that are before the courts. Um, I drafted wills for certain elderly individuals who came to me and explained how they have, let's say, four children and only one of them ever cared about them and took care of them. The other three never showed their face started showing up when they were starting to get ill, asking questions about assets and things like that. And they were adamant that they had to cut these other children out of the will and leave them nothing because, you know, they don't deserve it. 
And you know, it's my job as a lawyer to explain to them, look, if you do that, you're asking for trouble. They will contest the will. When you die, they're going to hire a lawyer and they're going to basically embroil the estate in litigation for the next five years and suck every last penny out of it. This is this goes back to something I learned at my very first firm with Larry and Larry said, just settle whatever to do not involve the lawyers or accountants because you're going to empty the coffers. And that's great advice, yeah. but nobody follows it. <laughs> right? When yeah. money is yeah. involved, unfortunately, yeah. how do you settle? Like, I'll give you the example of the case I worked on. You know, I had this, in, this elderly individual, sharp as a tack. He must, when he came to see me, he must have been 94 years old. So I did a number of things for him over the years. And then when he was about 96 or 97, he made this decision that he was going to change his will. His wife had passed. And in their initial will, the husband and wife left everything to each other, which is typical, and then divide everything among my kids equally if, if, we, you know, if there's no survivor of either of us. And then the wife died. She had Alzheimer's. And uh, this poor old man with his son... Um, who sold his house to move in with his father and help him take care of the mother, who everybody knows Alzheimer's is a terrible disease and it sucks every last ounce of energy out of you. It was a full-time job taking care of this woman. In any event, she passed on and the father, who was very sharp and, you know, at 94, 95, sharp as a tack, um, you know, the son was living with him with his spouse and family and taking care of their father and doing the groceries and taking him to the doctor and all this other stuff. He calls me up one day, this old man, and he says, I, I need to come and talk to you. And he would drive to my office, you know, uh, it was a good 10 kilometers by himself. You know, he was my client. He knew he had to come and talk to me alone with nobody around. So I would, he gave me these explicit instructions. He had thought about it so much that he wrote it all down. And he, he was an Italian man. His English was limited. But because I'm fluent in Italian, I could understand and speak with him and take instructions. And he wrote down a long letter as to why he was making the decision he was making to exclude his other three children. Um, and I warned him that the other three kids, most definitely when he passed, were going to retain a lawyer and contest this. And then he said, I don't care. I want you to take my instructions and do as I say. So as an added measure, I decided I was going to send him out for a capacity assessment, which is what anybody should do nowadays, especially when you get instructions like this under these circumstances from an elderly individual. So, you know, I crossed the T's, dotted the I's. I sent him to someone who was certified as a capacity assessor who spoke the same language and wrote a whole blurb and gave an, you know, a legal opinion on this individual's mental state and confirming that he was sharp as a tack, knew exactly what he was doing, knew the nature and consequences of changing his will and excluding the... So with that in hand and my client's instructions, I went ahead and I changed the will. Sure enough, he was 99 years old. He passed away. I got the call from the son who basically inherited everything uh, or most of uh, the estate. 
advising me that the other three kids had retained a lawyer and were suing the estate. So that's when you talk about testamentary freedom. Yeah, you can put whatever you want in your will. Doesn't mean that, you know, it can't be challenged. Everything's open to challenge. And at the end of the day, it's up to a judge to determine whether what's been done was fair and reasonable. Um, at the end of the day, judges are not likely to overturn wills if there's clear evidence that the testator, the maker of the will, knew exactly what he was doing, was of sound mind, received proper advice, um, and that there were no extenuating circumstances. Meaning, you know, there could be a, a number of factors at play. You know, was the, the son who was getting everything coercing the father, exerting undue influence? So courts look at all of that. And they will decide whether, you know, they're going to uphold it or not. But at the end of the day, a three to five year trial and something like that, you're going to, the client's going to end up spending $500,000 in legal fees, roughly. The children who hired their own lawyer are going to probably spend the same amount. And if they can prove that there were legitimate, their case was legitimate in the sense that they had a legitimate gripe to bring the complaint, the judge may order those costs to be paid out of the estate, and then there may not be any money left anyway. Could be. I mean, and this is the thing. Anytime there's a dispute, anytime there's there's litigation involved, nothing against lawyers, but uh, anytime there's litigation involved, it's really only the lawyers and the professions that support the lawyers, business valuators, accountants, um, psychologists, whatever it is, that end up making the money right it's usually not the the two parties that are in dispute right so it's i i find it's always better to put human emotion aside and to sort of try to mediate or work it out right now in this particular case i wanted to get into probate and what probate is but let's push that aside in this particular case um could not could a lot of this have not been um avoided by simply you know putting things in joint in joint name like for example okay here we go ignoring the tax consequences right but we have a million dollar investment portfolio okay put the son who you want to inherit that as joint with rights of survivorship then conceivably it doesn't have to go through the will and nobody really has to know about it right could you not have put the house joint with rights of survivorship could could that be a methodology that you you can utilize ignoring taxation of all of this mm -hmm. is that a methodology that could be utilized to sort of bypass this whole will process because the will my understanding is is a public document yes right yeah so that's man you you, you opened up a hodgepodge of <laughs> issues there i mean where do i start i think what we should start with is what is probate so probate is a legal mechanism whereby a will is proved. Probate means to prove a will. And how do you prove a will? So proving a will means you're the executor. So let's use the example of John Doe. He dies. He names his, uh, his son as his executor. The son grabs this will and in it, it says, I leave everything to ABCD. Okay, well, some of those investments that the father had are real estate, uh, stocks and bonds, uh, a life insurance policy, some registered investments, unregistered investments, whatnot. So what does he do now, the son? How does he get those assets transferred to the beneficiaries? 
Well, what happens is a lot of the investments that, for example, real estate and investments with institutions like um, banks, for example, you can't just show up at the bank and say, look, I have my father's will. It says all his GICs have to come to me and his all his bell stock has to go to my sister or whatever the will says. Well, the banks are, you know, loathe to liability and very risk averse. So they're going to sit there and say, A, I don't know who you are. Thank you. Here's your ID. I don't know that what you're showing me is, in fact, a real valid will that was executed properly. How do I know that your father did not change this will and that this is, in fact, his last will and testament that gives me the direction and you the power to ask me to transfer these assets? So over the years, the courts, these estates courts have developed to deal with these issues. And the mechanism was probating the will. So what you would do is you would take that will, we'd prepare, you'd go to a lawyer, the lawyer would prepare court documents to submit the will, serve all the beneficiaries named in the will with a copy of it, and give them so many days to object to the contents of the will. So you're basically giving notice to the beneficiaries and it gives everybody an opportunity to sort of step up or step forward and say, hold on a second, I knew dad prepared another will after the date of that one or something to that effect. If nothing surfaces within that period of notice, um, which is typically 30 days, what will happen is that the executor then uh, will prove to the court, I've served everybody, no one's objected, here's the last will, I need you to put your rubber stamp on it and give me the authority to distribute those assets in the will. So what the court would do is they'd say, great, no problem. You have to pay tax or probate fees used to be called, now it's estate administration tax, on the value of the estate. Um, so with that check, you having done everything you're supposed to do and serving everyone, they will issue what's called a certificate. Used to be called letters probate, now it's called a certificate of appointment of a state trustee. It's a piece of paper with a court seal on it, that executor now has the authority to go anywhere and everywhere to the bank and say, here, I have the authority. Now, those funds, I have the power to deal with. You will take direction from me. And they're happy to do that because the liability has shifted from the bank to the executor. Okay, so that's what probate is, um, which opens up the whole issue of taxation and how to minimize probate fees and things like that, right? Uh, is, is pro I mean, it's not called probate anymore. What's it called now? It's still called probate, okay. but the documents themselves, so the, the fees that you used to pay used to be called probate fees, yep. which is a tax based on the value of the estate. So we don't have death taxes right. in Canada. Uh, what we have are, it's more like a transition tax, a transfer tax on the probate of the will. So for you to probate that will, you have to pay a tax on the value of the estate. It used to be called probate fees. Now it's called uh, estate administration. Tax. And is that a flat percentage? Yeah, the good question. So unfortunately, Ontario has the highest, I'm going to call them probate fees in the country. Um, I don't know why. Um, you know, you can, if you die in Alberta and have assets in Alberta and you go to probate a will in Alberta, you pay a flat fee. I think it's 45 bucks. Whoa. To the, to the <laughs> province of Alberta. Here we wait, go. Wait until you hear Here this. Here we go. Right? Wait until you hear this. So in Ontario... 
you have to pay a percentage. And it's used to be uh, um, graduated on the first 50,000, right? Um, but now they've eliminated that. Um, so uh, what happens is it's basically 1.5% of the value of the estate. The fair market value of the estate. Over, over 50,000. Yeah. So there's no tax on the on 50. If your estate is $50,000 or less, you don't pay any any fees or tax. If you have an estate greater than 50,000, you got to pay it's $15 per thousand, which works out to 1.5%. So if you have a million dollars in your estate, you got to pay $15,000 in tax. $10 million, $150,000 in tax. And this is your just just the probate Fees. Just probate. In addition to that, then obviously we're going to talk about this in a different podcast. But there's there's the deemed disposition of all your assets, and you have to pay capital gains right. capital gains tax on top of all of this. Right. Very heavy. Yeah. So that's why this area of estates is a very busy area for a lot of practitioners, because what happens is you know we we're talking about our clients earlier and our typical clients. You know, if you have a client who owns a business that's doing rather well, uh, you know, after 25, 30 years, you know, let's say the business is worth, you know, five, ten million dollars. That's just the business. They might have a home that's worth three, four million dollars, a cottage worth another two, three million dollars, stocks and bonds, things like that, investments, real estate, uh, land, uh, developments, whatever. It's not hard. To get to, you know, nowadays, you, you know, I don't have to tell you in Toronto, a garage costs a million dollars. So, you know, if that's all you own, your, your executor would have to cough up $15,000 to get your will probated when you die. So it's, it's a lot of money. So a lot of our clients, you know, are very, very keen on how do I avoid paying all this money over to the government and leaving most of it to my beneficiaries, right? And that's where we get involved and we do, you know, some planning there and you know, we talk about multiple wills and joint ownership of assets and things like that. Right. So I guess one of the, one of the, let's call it tricks is joint ownership of assets. And I get this question a lot. Can I, can I be put on my mom's or my dad's home or, um, you know, even just with, a, it, it just traditional estate planning with a, owner managed business i sometimes i'll do an estate freeze issue new shares to a trust um you know freeze mom and dad's uh portion of the company and waste it over time but just traditional like can i get on you know my parents house as a as a joint owner one percent right such that you know i take over the house when they pass away and we avoid probate can i get on their can you know their stock account as a joint owner what are the what are the challenges there that you're seeing so this is another interesting area because it's been litigated before the courts heavily in the last several years so in the old days when i say the old days when i was a young lawyer practicing you know the common theme was you know you've got elderly clients you know who basically most of the most of their, their, their net worth is all tied up in their principal residence and maybe a cottage or something like that. And, you know, they would come and see me and they would say, you know, I don't want the government to get, you know, my state has to pay all this tax. I would rather leave it to my kids. I want to put my house in joint ownership with my kids. So there's pluses and minuses to doing that. The, 
let, let's start with the pluses. The pluses are jointly held assets are excluded from the estate, as are other types of investments. Like there's registered investments like RRSPs, TFSAs, uh, life insurance, um, resulting trusts. Those fall outside the estate. Um, so if we go back to the example of the house with the parents, the plus is, you know, sure, you can put Johnny and Mary as joint tenants on your house. Um, and that will avoid them having to pay probate on the value of your house. So let's say the house is worth a million when you die. They save 15,000 bucks. There's what we call a right of survivorship. <clears throat> so when one joint tenant dies, the asset transfers by right of survivorship to the surviving owner or ten joint tenant. Now, sounds easy enough, but like I said in the beginning, everything is intertwined. By doing that, you may be affecting the principal residence exemption on the home because Johnny and Mary probably live in their own house, have their own families, and they are registered owners of other houses or properties. So by the parents putting them on their house, they've basically disqualified them from 50% of that principal residence exemption. And they don't realize that. Um, so that's one drawback. And the other one is control. I told my clients, I said, listen, once you transfer this property into anyone else's name, you've lost control of that property, even if it's 1%. You cannot sell that property. You can't mortgage that property without the consent of all the registered owners. Right? Right. I so, think that's the bigger, the bigger concern, at least with me, is the loss of control, especially later on in life when people, you know, uh, get a little bit older and they're like, hey, look, I'm fine to live in this house. I don't want to go into, you know, I don't want to go somewhere else or whatever, or they want to remortgage or do a reverse mortgage to supplement their income. Now they gotta, they've got to go to their children or whomever it is that they've added and ask permission. And that's that's sort of demeaning for, for a lot of people, especially later on in life. Now I got to get my son's permission to do something that, you know, like what what challenges are you seeing from that? Well, I don't I don't know. I I just tell people not to do this. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, the principal residence exemption is is a great example. But uh, I mean, just I I'm a I'm a fan of just just pay the tax. I mean, if you put Johnny on and not Mary, you know, sure it's not going to go through. It's not going to go through. But if I know they have a principal residence and I'm Johnny and Mary got on. I'm going to somehow try and sue, so we're still stuck, are we not? You are. Uh, I mean, I don't want to, you know, only give the negative, you know, side of it. There, there are pros, and I'll give you right. examples where it works really well, right? Okay. So I'll get a call. Client uh, is uh, a widow. Let's say an elderly woman in her 80s or 90s. Uh, her daughter or son lives with her. Um, they're either single, divorced, um, and they've lived with the parent for many, many years. And it's like their house anyway. So in a case like that, you don't lose the exemption because it's their principal residence also. So that's a good case for doing it. The parent, you know, has to receive independent legal advice and has to be told of the loss of control issue and all of that. But at the end of the day, the parents like, you know, look, my daughter's lived with me in this house 
since forever. It's her house anyway, or my son, and they do all the repairs and they pay the bills. And so it's a no-brainer in a case like that. Another one is where, you know, uh, let's say we go back to the original example. You've got two or three kids and um, elderly parents failing health, you know, in their 90s. They're not going to live much longer. So transferring the house into joint tenancy avoids probate. Capital gain, not really a big issue. You know, parents are probably going to live another year, two, three, whatever. So appreciation, not much, right? Not so last year. What? Yeah, not last, last year. Well, but... there you go, right? <laughs> yeah. That could happen. Yeah. yeah. Right? But generally speaking, but no. generally yeah. speaking, that's not going to happen. Um, and, you know, but you weigh the pros and the cons. Like the savings on probate. Like that's really what this is. It's a cost-benefit analysis, right? It's a calculation. Do I, is it worth saving the land transfer tax to lose on the capital gains? You, you got to do the math, right. right? So you meet with your accountant, you know, and the accountant will crunch the numbers. And if they're happy and they advise the client that's the way to go, then, hey, we're, we're happy. Right. You know? Are you seeing a lot of, uh, we're on real estate. I mean, uh, liquid assets are something different, but are you seeing a lot of real estate held with mortgages go, go into probate? proper what do you mean like a house with a mortgage on? yeah yeah like rental property with mortgage or even like now we're seeing what he, he's alluding to i think mm-hmm. is we're starting to see people entering into full-blown retirement with a sizable mortgage mm-hmm. right it, it, you know just because the the cost of homes in this area and in, in the gta are just they've skyrocketed and people are just not paying their mortgage off so right? what's the question i don't understand yeah are you seeing this are you seeing people passing away with mortgaged properties and then what happens to that mortgage oh 100 percent very few people die without a mortgage unless they're from a certain generation of my parents or my my grandparents right everybody younger than that is going to die with a mortgage most likely so in 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 this (laughs) case i mean does does the let's say johnny is getting a house but the house has a mortgage Mm -hmm. on it does johnny have to liquidate? Can Johnny get the mortgage? Does he have to qualify for the mortgage? How does all that work? Okay, so first, I think it's good to explain that when someone dies and the calculation of probate, it's on the net value Perfect. of the estate. So you deduct any debt. Those mortgages would be deducted. So if the house is worth a million and it's got a $500,000 mortgage, only 500000 gets included in the value of the estate. And you pay probate on 500, not the mill. Okay. Okay. Um, as far as what happens to the mortgage, uh, the mortgage never goes away. It stays on the property after the person dies. So the executor will have to maintain the mortgage, the utilities, the property taxes until he can finish uh, um, finalizing the estate. The accountants are preparing the terminal return, uh, the final tax return, getting a clearance certificate from CRA. Until you get that cleared certificate from CRA, you can't distribute anything, right? So usually it takes about a year. So then once the clearance certificate comes in, the executor will most likely hire a real estate agent and sell the house. So that's that's what I wanted to get to. That was the nail right there. Are you seeing more people holding properties come out of probate or are they being liquidated in in the estate process? Um, you know, it really depends like 
how the testator drafted their will. So, for example, I've drafted wills where, you know, the couple, husband and wife, have a young child. They're elderly, and they, you know, had this kid, you know, in their 50s, you know. Uh, and um, they've got older kids and then this really young kid who's living in the house with them and all of that. And their fear is, what if we die and leave this kid who's under the age of 18? Where's he going to go? You know, the other siblings, one lives in Dubai, one lives in Greece, I don't know. And so what they'll do is they'll set up what's, you know, trusts for this child. One trust might be a house trust where they say the house that we own and live in with this child at the date of our death, we want the executor to keep this house and to have the guardians of our child live in this house with the child, if that's feasible. And usually that's the guardian who would do that. And we're going to set aside some money for um, the executor to maintain this house, pay the mortgage, the utilities, uh, until the child reaches 18. When the child reaches 18 or the legal age of majority, could be 21, whatever age they'd stipulate, but it's usually 18, then the child gets the house and decides what he wants to do with that house. Okay. Right? So I don't want to get too, too, too detailed into like the nitty gritty, right? But we've covered like what is a will, what is probate, um, certain alternative ways to leave assets to uh, beneficiaries, the pros and cons of that. Um, what I did want to cover was, you know, we've mentioned uh, a number of times the executor or the estate trustee, I think is the more um, technical way of saying it here in Canada, or at least in Ontario. Um, what is an executor, number one? And number two, what are the considerations um, that the person creating the will, what are the considerations they should make when choosing an executor, whether it's hiring an executor from like say a trust company or appointing a child. And then on the flip side, do I, if I'm appointed as an executor, do I actually have to accept that? And what are the legal risks of accepting the, the appointment as an executor? Right. So we'll start with what is an executor? What is an executor? So an executor, slash trustee slash estate trustee all the same thing uh, is the person that in your will you've appointed to basically administer your will and distribute the assets in accordance with your wishes so this is a very onerous and thankless job and every executor i've ever sat down with has you know confirmed to me Exactly that. It's it's one of the worst jobs you could ever be given. Why is that? Because A, if it's a family member, so if it's, you know, dad appoints son or daughter to be executor, and they're usually beneficiaries also of the will, most of the time, if not all the time, they're not going to take compensation. You're entitled, by the way, to be, as an executor, take compensation. Compensation is determined by common law for executors. If it's a power of attorney for property, it's determined by statute. But there's a common law that has decided, okay, how do you compensate an executor? It's surprising that the government never decided to codify this. The courts have decided what's fair and not fair. But there's a rule of thumb that it's about 5%. Okay, 2.5% on capital, 
that's coming into the estate, 2.5% on capital distributed out of the estate. And then there's ongoing management of assets if you're managing funds and stocks and bonds for beneficiaries. So if you've got a child who inherits and the will says they don't get it till they're 18 and they're five years old, for 13 years you've got to invest these funds and manage them and deal with the investment advisors and all that, then as an executor you're entitled to an ongoing management fee. Okay, So the courts have decided what those fees are. But if it's mom and dad that appointed me as the executor and I'm a beneficiary, I'm not going to take compensation because I'm taking money right out of my own share, right? So, and you feel kind of, most people wouldn't do it. You don't feel right about it. You know, it's mom and dad and I'm just going to do what I got to do to get the funds to my brother and my sister and whatever. So um, it's a very difficult job because you not only have to deal with uh, burying the um, making funeral arrangements for the deceased right which is what you have to do when the person dies like what do you do I mean you're the executor so you now have to go to the funeral home find out uh, you know oh geez I think dad we talked about this he wants to be buried in a crypt or he wanted to be cremated uh, you got to go and make those arrangements and set all that up and then, okay, that's all done. Okay, now I got to go gather all the paperwork, figure out what dad owned. <clears throat> okay, so I got to meet with the insurance advisor, got to meet with the banker, got to meet with the accountant, got to meet with the lawyer once I've got all the paperwork ready to start putting the probate application together. Lots of time, lots of effort um, and liability. So that brings me into, you know, an executor has what's called a fiduciary duty or obligation, which is the highest standard of duty that anyone could have in the eyes of the law. It's equivalent to the relationship between a priest, practitioner, doctor, patient, lawyer, client, okay, which means if you breach that duty or fall below a certain level or standard of care, you're personally liable to the estate and the beneficiaries. You could be sued and your personal assets exposed. So it's a very onerous and thankless job. <laughs> but having said that, it's a very important job. So how do you pick an executor, right? I think you asked that question. I get that question all the time. My clients are sitting in there and say, I have no one. Like I've had clients who have no children, husband and wife, no kids, no grand, nothing. Who do we pick? Okay. Then you get the client who has kids but doesn't trust any of them. Have the client who has kids but they're minors, have to be over the age of 18, have to be mentally competent, and you cannot have ever been adjudged or be currently adjudged a bankrupt to qualify as an executor. Okay, and no criminal record. Okay, so what do you do? So in case, the difficult cases, this is where my experience working for the banks comes in. I will refer them to someone in the trust office of one of the major banks. And the really nice thing about doing that is, is that they literally take all of that burden away from the executor. They're set up, you know, you, I use an example of, let's say Toronto Dominion Bank. They are the oldest and largest trust company in Canada. The other ones are also very good, but I use that one because I used to work very closely with them. And they have departments that specialize only in estates. They have a, a trust officer, and then they have everybody under the trust officer. There's a tax advisor. 
there's a, a paralegal, everyone. And what they do is they will say to the executor, listen, if we are named, I'm sorry, to the testator, if you name us as your executor, and you can name a bank as an executor, we will take care of everything when you die. Now, people say, well, I don't know. Can I trust the bank? Well, hold on a second. You can trust them more than you can trust an individual. Yeah, for, I was going to say for, right? uh, for 50, <laughs> 50 grand on, uh, on a million, I'm sure TD is going to take that job every day. Right. Right. Yeah, they love that stuff. That's <laughs> big money. Yeah, but it's going, to, like, it's going to save a lot of headaches and, and internal fighting amongst the children. Right. You take yeah. that out of the equation and you make it business. Now, the thing is, it's expensive. And you got a lot of times the client, it's a tough sell. Well, how much is the bank charge? I tell them the bank charges you exactly what your executor is legal, lawfully entitled to charge you, 5%. But the difference is that the executor they might choose may not actually take compensation. The bank will take compensation. And they love this type of work. It's, it's seamless for them because they are also set up as investment banks and they can invest in their own funds. And, you know, so we draft wills that are specific where a trust company is the executor with provisions that permit the banks to invest in their own pooled funds and, and, and mutual funds and things like that. So that's one avenue, right? And then the other avenue is, you know, I tell people, look, you got to pick somebody who you trust and who is capable and up to the task. Do not pick, um, you know, an elderly individual, right? If you're in your 40s, don't go pick mom and dad because the chances are that they're going to die before you and then someone else has to step in, right? You know, so things like that are taken okay. into consideration. Perfect. So I think um, at this point, once again, I don't want to get too, too detailed, but I think we've covered all the bases, at least that I wanted to cover, mm -hmm. right? Um, what is a will? You know, what happens if you die without a will? Benefits of having a will drafted properly. Um, I'm not even going to get into the stuff like, oh, can I use a will kit online? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Use a will kit online and then go do your tax return online too and see how it comes out, right? Mm. Um, one thing I, I'm just going to hit quick. If, if I die tomorrow and I have a will and I leave everything to my wife, it still has to clear probate or it, no? That's a good question. Depends on what assets you own. So if you have, let's say you just own your house together, yeah. your matrimonial home, and it's in joint tenancy, your will doesn't even come into play. Right. There's okay. a right yeah. of survivorship. The house will pass to the wife by right of survivorship. She just has to come to a lawyer's office. We prepare what's called a survivorship application. Right. Remove yeah. the deceased name, and now the house is in her name. Okay. So, so it depends you, on what assets are owned. Right. That's right. exactly what yeah. I needed to know. Okay. Yeah, so I think yeah. I think we've covered the basics. I did want to talk about second wills, but I think now I've made the decision it's a little bit too advanced <laughs> for this. Um, but uh, maybe we could talk about that late, like in another session. Um, how do people find you? Uh, I'm on the internet, uh, www.vumbakalaw.com. Uh, my name is Angelo Vumbaka. Uh, you just Google my name, you'll get my website. Um, that's it. And you're operating, you have your office in Richmond Hill, and I think you have something in Oakville now as well, right? Uh, we have, I've been in Richmond Hill for about uh, at least 15 years, I think now. Um, and I'm uh, in, in the works of opening a satellite office in Oakville. Uh, but we're fully remote. You know, we're, we've got all the technology uh, to do the Zoom meetings and all that. Like, that's also another discussion for another day. Right. You know, pre-COVID, you had to go to a lawyer's office to sign a will. Yeah. There's formalities to signing a will. Have to have two witnesses. 
right, who are not the executor or the beneficiaries. That's why you'd always go to a lawyer, be him and one of his staff witnessing your signature. Um, but now, because of COVID, certain legislation has come out and they've permitted legally, they've encoded this in the statute, virtual wills. Okay. So, you know, you convenient. don't even have to go to the lawyer's office. Having said that, I still prefer that the client comes right. because it's more of a, it's more, it takes more time doing it virtually. Like you can't just sign virtually. The way the law came into play, it's a little stupid in my opinion, but basically the person who's signing the will, you know, you've got them on a camera and you're looking at them through the video and they have to show you each page that they initial and then sign. And then that has to be couriered to you or the two witnesses, and you got to do the same procedure with the other two individuals and show them that you're witnessing and signing. So anyway, it's possible and it works, but you know, I, I prefer the yeah. meet and greet, you know? Okay, perfect. Cool. So that was awesome. Yeah. Um, anybody needs to get in touch with you for a will, for sure. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Thanks for coming Andrew. out. Thanks, guys.